If you have a Bible this morning, I want you to go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, where we're going to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles provided at the the middle aisle. Uh, Each aisle should have one. Flag somebody down who's sitting over there. They'll pass it to you. Take it with you if you don't own a copy of the Bible. We'd love for you to have that one. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, this is a time of the year where we get a lot of visitors, people moving into town to start training for something. We're really glad you're here. Unfortunately, maybe fortunately, I don't know, you're here at the very end of what has been a really long journey for us, eight months in the making. Eight months ago, we started a journey through this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching, its longest, most extended recorded teaching that we have access to still today. We're going to be wrapping it up this morning. It's bittersweet. I don't like the ends of good things, and this is the end of a a season that's been really good for us as a church. Thankfully, we have a good note to end it on. We have one of Jesus' most unforgettable images, and it's an image that sets us up this morning for a look back. This morning, we're going to be doing a little bit of retrospective, looking back over what we've considered together throughout this sermon to try to make sure the choice that all of us have in front of us is clear. To have heard what Jesus said through this sermon is to be presented with a choice that none of us can avoid. And we want to understand what that is and how we're making it, what it would look like to decide for Jesus. Before we do that, though, I want to make sure you know what's coming next. So what's coming next for my family is a new baby, Lord willing, any day now. So what's coming next for you guys on Sunday mornings is a couple of opportunities to hear from other brothers who who have spent a lot of time preparing to explain God's Word to you next Sunday and then the Sunday after. Bill Hearman will be preaching next Sunday. Will Acuff the Sunday after that. They'll finish out the month of August on a couple of uh, isolated texts, not part of a series, just things that have been encouraging to them in their own study that they want to share with you. Uh, So it'll be a great chance to kind of catch our breath at the end of one long series before we start another series the first Sunday in September. And that series is, drum roll please, we're going to be doing a series through the book of Judges. Don't everybody cheer at once. (laughs) The book of Judges. Just out of curiosity, how many of you here have ever heard a sermon series on the book of Judges? We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people have been through Judges. That's awesome. Uh, Eight more than I expected to raise their hands. Uh, We're going to be in Judges this, and and, and you're going to hear a lot more about why we're choosing this book and what we're going to learn together in it. Uh, That first Sunday of the series will... We'll, we'll do a big flyover uh, of the whole series. And, and yet, what I want to mention for now is, uh, is two things. One, it'd be really great if you went ahead and read it. I, I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on who's ever read it or who's read it recently. That might just embarrass us, right? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to ask for that, but I am going to encourage you to go ahead and, and read it between now and the beginning of September when we're going to start this series and, and make some notes and write down some questions that you have about what's there. That'll help you to engage the series better. One of the reasons we wanted to do Judges after the Sermon on the Mount, one of several reasons we wanted to to go there, is that Judges is all about our need for a king. Judges is a sort of prequel to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom. It's all about what Jesus as king has come to establish. Judges is all about why we need that so badly. So we're going to take a step back from the sermon series we've We've been working through together at the beginning of the year, back in time, if you will, back into the storyline of the Bible and understand Jesus better, the Jesus we've been considering and unpacking early this year. 
better in light of, of what judges told us to expect. That's where we're headed, starting uh, September 4th, I believe, is that first Sunday. Now, we've got some unfinished business with our Sermon on the Mount first, though. At the very beginning of this series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I read a quote from a, a pastor passed away now, a faithful pastor from, from England from last century, a guy named John Stott. He said this at the beginning of a really great commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is how John Stott summarized it. He said, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood certainly is the least obeyed. I hope by now we understand it a bit better than we did back in January. This morning we want to think about what it would mean to obey it. I hope by now we understand it a bit better than we did. Hopefully by now you know that the Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God. Jesus began the sermon with a reference to the kingdom. First words out of his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At the very top of his sermon, he's talking about who gets into the kingdom. And then last week, we looked at verses 21 to 23 of Matthew chapter 7. And there he is at the end of the sermon, right back on the same subject. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Still talking about the kingdom of heaven, what it's like. Who gets in? And that subject was the driving force of the whole sermon. He spoke as a king of a kingdom. And his sermon was all about what it looks like to be part of that kingdom. What we've said over and over and over again, what each individual passage has tried to give some texture to, is this claim that when you're with Jesus, when you're in his kingdom, kingdom righteousness, kingdom lifestyles, always show up. They're never hidden. To be with Him is to be like Him. To be like Him is to look different than you would otherwise. We talked about the sermon as a kind of profile of people who are in the kingdom. It's kind of like a national identity, if you will. I'm not going to list out different stereotypes that we have for the nations around the world or different ones that they have for us, though I could do that. I just want to mention that everybody has them, right? You have these shortcuts that your brain takes, these associations with people from certain places or certain, uh, certain nationalities. And that's okay. It's not a bad thing. Jesus is saying the kingdom that I'm coming to establish should come with a kind of stereotype, a healthy one, one where kingdom citizens are known for some very specific things. What he's, what he's been saying, in other words, is that the kingdom he's come to build is a counterculture. It's different from other kingdoms around it. He wants to make sure we understand what that difference will be because we'll be expected to look different. He used images of salt and light that that his kingdom is in this world a preservative, an illuminating source, something that apart from which the, the, the culture wouldn't be as healthy as it is. He talked about all several different ways throughout chapter 5 of, of ways that the kingdom would show up. Where he has these several different sections where he says, don't be like them. And 
contrast his kingdom with, say, the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, or with the, the pagans, the Greeks that they lived around. It's a beautiful picture. Think about chapter 5. He, he talks about how Jesus and his kingdom, citizens who are reflecting him, well, they're, they're going to they're gonna respond to other people's flaws differently. That's where the kingdom will show up. They're going to look at other people's bodies differently. That's where the kingdom will show up. They're going to they're have different posture towards their enemies than citizens of other kingdoms. Chapter 6, we saw that, that they're going to spend and save their money differently. They're going to think about the future differently than citizens of other kingdoms. They're going to they're judge differently than citizens of other kingdoms. Whatever, whatever specific instance you want to point to in the sermon, the same thing comes up over and over. Kingdom righteousness always shows up. But Jesus has said, really carefully, kingdom righteousness, his righteousness, it never shows up in order to show up. You never stand out because you really want to stand out. For it to be genuine kingdom righteousness, it has to be rooted in the heart. It has to be that way because you could not be that way. Not because you're trying to make a name for yourself. Not because you're, not because you're trying to prove something. Christians aren't righteous in order to stand out. That's what Jesus has been talking about. Those are his words. And by the end of chapter 7, he's done talking about the kingdom. Now what he's doing is addressing all of us who've heard his words with a choice. It's a choice you can't escape this morning. You've heard his word, so, so now what? In the last section of chapter 7, starting in verse 24, Jesus gives us an unforgettable image, one that you've probably heard before. He contrasts for us two ways to hear and respond to what he said. In both cases, he describes a person who's building a house. The houses look similar on the outside, but the houses have two very different foundations, and those two different foundations lead to two very different results. We want to unpack his image together this morning, understand the differences and the similarities between these two pictures so that we can understand what choice we've been confronted with and how we're going to make it. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from verse 24 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 29. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus' words to you. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, it'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated.
I want to take three steps this morning. I want you to see from this image that the choice in front of you is clear. The choice is clear. I want to make sure that you see that. That the stakes are high. The stakes of this choice couldn't be higher than what they are. And then I want to leave you with a question. What will you do with Jesus? Knowing what you now know, what will you do with Jesus? So first of all, the choice is clear. Look at how Jesus frames the choice in this final image. It said before, here in chapter 7, he's given us several different images. All of them meant to show us that we've got two ways to go here. Two and only two. Everybody who hears him will take one of those two ways. And, and here he's going to make the same point in this image. Look at how he frames the choice. He imagines these two builders. Like one of them is described in verse 24 and 25. The other one in, in verse 26 and 27. Two builders. Did you notice what's similar and what's different about them? What's similar about them is that they're both building. They're both building a house. The house apparently looks the same. Jesus doesn't draw any attention to its appearance. The difference, what he wants to draw your eye into through this contrast, is in the foundation they choose for their house. The difference between rock and the sand. And the difference between the rock and the sand, the difference in foundation, Jesus says, is the difference between one who hears and obeys and one who hears and does not obey. Did you see that? Everyone who hears these words and does them, that's the one who's building on the rock. Verse 26, everyone who hears and does not do them, that's the one who builds on the sand. Everybody's building. Think of the, the house as an image for your life. Everybody's building a life. The question is whether you're building your life on a rock or on the sand. Deeper, one layer deeper. The question is whether you're building your life around obedience to what Jesus has said or about, around disobedience to what he said. The difference between doing and not doing. Here Jesus is just, he's just reinforcing the same thing that he said last week about entering the kingdom. It's not the people who say, Lord, Lord, who entered the kingdom of heaven. Right ideas aren't enough. It's those who do the will of his Father who is in heaven. Those are the ones who enter the kingdom. It's either or. Everyone who hears chooses either to obey or not to obey. What matters is not what you're interested in or what you admire about Jesus or what you say you're going to do after hearing from him, it's whether you obey from the heart to please him rather than make a name for himself. There's only two ways to go here. Jesus is trying to say that to you this morning. There's only two ways to go after you've heard this sermon. There is only belief or unbelief. There's no middle ground. There is only submission to him as king or rejection of him as a fraud. That's the only two ways you can go. There is only action or inaction. Here's the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. The only thing which exists besides action is inaction. There's no such thing as intending to act and not doing it. Those who treat the word of Jesus any other way except by acting on it assert that Jesus is wrong. I think he's spot on there. Those who treat the word of Jesus any other way except by acting on it you're making a statement, whether you mean to or not. You're saying that Jesus is wrong. 
They say no, Bonhoeffer continues. They say no to the Sermon on the Mount. They do not do his words. And all our questions and complications and interpretations, all of them are inaction. Friends, every single one of you is going to make this choice. Not one of you can avoid it. That's Jesus' first point. You are going to build, and you are going to build on one of two foundations. Obedience or disobedience. The choice is clear. The other thing Jesus wants you to notice through this image is that the stakes are high. They couldn't be higher. What Jesus is saying in this image is that your life depends on this choice that you've got to make. Notice again the similarities and the differences between the two hearers. You've you've got two people, both of them here. You've got two people, both of them build. Then you've got two people, both of whom experience storms. Both of them have rain that comes, floods that rise, winds that beat against their houses... Both of them. But only one survives. The difference between those who are with Jesus and those who are not with Jesus has nothing to do with pleasant circumstances in life. Jesus has said that really clearly. He's told you you should expect to be persecuted. The blessed are persecuted. He said that the narrow way that he's calling you to is a hard way. The other way is going to look easier. You can bank on storms. Life in the kingdom for now is not an easy life. You've got to say no to some things that others offer you. You've got to say no to yourself, to the natural desires that you have. You've got to absorb persecution and poor treatment from others without retaliating. You've got to be willing to do without treasure on earth. There there is no incentive at all to to ease of life in the picture that Jesus has been painting. So, so friends, you, you can't look at the hard things, the things you'd rather change and judge his words by them. He didn't promise otherwise to his followers for now. What he has promised is that the storms you can bank on won't destroy the one whose life is founded on the rock, the one who is obedient to his kingdom. He's promised you you can't expect storms. And he's promised that the one who obeys will not be destroyed. He's saying that not he's he's saying not that that quality of life hinges on this choice necessarily. He's saying that life itself depends on this choice. In this context, he's emphasizing not just surviving the hard things of life, but surviving the judgment of God. Last week, we considered Matthew 27, 21 to 23. In that passage, Jesus imagines a day, a day that's coming that all of us will experience. A day when every person who's ever lived will stand before God in judgment and have the record of their life exposed before the one who sees all things. And on that day, many, many who even think they're with Jesus will be turned away. 
That's what Jesus said last week. And this week, he's still got that in his mind when he talks about the the storms of life that are coming for the houses built by those who obey and those who don't. And what he's saying is that on that day, on that day of judgment, only one will survive. Jesus' kingdom matters because hell is real. And it's the only alternative to his kingdom. There's really just one point to this parable Jesus has just told. And that is that only those who obey will survive. I wonder if you're turned off by that message this morning. You're in good company if you are. Many people always have been. Different reasons for that in different times and different places, but Jesus isn't here trying to be winsome. Jesus, in some places, uses language that is winsome, that does draw you in. When he talks about being a good shepherd who knows his sheep, knows them by name and lays down his life for them. A shepherd who would never turn away anyone who comes to him. Jesus is using language that draws us in. Other places, like this one, Jesus uses language that is genuinely meant to scare us in. Sometimes I think we we assume that scaring people into the kingdom is always a bad idea. And I think that there's... There's something to that. There are unhealthy ways to talk about gloom and doom and judgment. We've, we've probably all experienced it. Some of us have been guilty of it. But it is, it is not inappropriate, is it? To scare someone when their life is in danger. If someone is sleeping in a house that's burning... And another friend recognizes the danger and wakes them up. Warns them, get out, get up, get out. That's going to scare them. But them being scared is the difference between their life and their death. And Jesus doesn't balk at using fear. To drive people he loves into the kingdom that will be their only shelter. Jesus means to scare you this morning, friends. Because the storm that is God's judgment, if weathered outside of Jesus and what he provides, is merciless and all-consuming. And no one will stand up under it. Friends, if, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, I think we need to hear this word of judgment, this warning of judgment ourselves. Because this this. This message about the storm that's coming and the, the either or, this binary choice between either surviving it or not surviving it based on whether you obey or disobey. 
this either or. This is what adds urgency to our calling to live together in community. Our lives are on the line in our friendships with each other. Do you realize that? Every conversation you have with a brother or a sister who's part of our church is an opportunity to be part of how God protects them from the judgment to come. Hebrews 3 says that it is on all of us. All of us are to make sure that no one falls prey to an unbelieving heart. Having heard the truth, to neglect to believe it. Hold on to it. And we believe God's word that he never lets go of those that are his. But right next to those words are, 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 are words about how he does that. About how he makes sure that no one falls away. And he's crystal clear that the way he makes sure no one falls away is that he puts them in churches full of people who aren't going to let them who by God's grace and through his power are going to take responsibility for urging each other into the kingdom. There's an urgency that comes to our friendships. They're not casual. They're not normal. In God's kingdom, friendships are an opportunity. It also adds urgency to our calling to get the gospel to those who don't have it. Do you realize every person who's ever lived faces the choice that Jesus is putting in front of us? Every person who ever lives will either respond to the truth that they have, that they have access to through what God has made and the conscience that he's put in there, in, inside them. Every person will be responsible for either obeying or not obeying. And some people, millions of people, right now, they woke up this morning, they'll go to bed tonight, They'll wake up tomorrow morning, go to bed tomorrow night. They will live a whole life full of days without any access to the choice Jesus has just laid in front of us. They won't know that they have life offered to them through what Jesus has done unless someone gets the gospel to them, unless they can hear it from someone who knows. This choice, this binary, either or, it's not pleasant to think about, is it? But whether it's pleasant or not, this doesn't come into it. It either is or it isn't. And if we believe in Jesus, if we submit to his kingdom, we have to take him at his word. And this means it's on us to help those who have no access know that they have choices. They have one choice. Life or death. It's on us. And this passage helps us understand why it's so important to be an ambassador for the kingdom that Jesus has called us into. The choice is clear and the stakes are high. They couldn't be higher. So really the only question that we're left with is what, what will we do with Jesus? We've heard of him now. We know his message. We know about his kingdom. We know what it would look like to obey. What will you do with him? What will you do with Jesus' call to choose obedience and life. The first crowds who heard him, verse 28 says, they were amazed, astonished at what they heard. And what they noticed was his authority. He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. I think what they noticed was, he doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. 
He doesn't say, let me explain to you more about what this prophet had in mind. Sometimes he does that, but he didn't do that here. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, let me explain it to you. He says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, over and over and over, it is his own authority that he's claiming for the words that he's teaching. He said things like, blessed are those who are persecuted because of my name. He's claiming there that you should be willing to face persecution because of him. Who claims that? And now here in chapter 7, he has equated following him or not following him with life or destruction. He said, he, those, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them life, doesn't do them death. Who claims that? Those who first heard him knew that they were not hearing from a normal teacher. He couldn't just be one of the scribes. What they recognize is something you've got to recognize as you answer this question, what will you do with Jesus? The first thing you've got to recognize is that Jesus is claiming a kind of unprecedented and universal authority. And if you want to be with Jesus, it's an authority you've got to accept and submit to. What you cannot do with Jesus is merely admire him or find him interesting or be inspired by his sermon. The first week when we talked about this sermon, I quoted from a couple of different people, famous figures throughout history who have loved it but weren't Christians. They love the image of loving your enemies, of not retaliating against those who have done you wrong. They love the the calls to to, to peace, to not treasuring things that are going to lead to war and conflict, putting your treasure somewhere else besides in stuff that just wears out, gets rusty or stolen. There's a lot to like about the vision of life that Jesus has laid out, and lots of people have liked it even when they haven't committed to Christ as their Lord. What we said then, what I'll say again now, especially in light of what Jesus has said here, is that I really just don't think that's an option. He is a crazy person if he's not God. No good teacher says the things that he said. Another image we used early on in the sermon bridges us to the Second thing you're going to need to know if you want to answer this question. What are you going to do with Jesus? The first thing you need to know is that he's either your Lord or he's nothing to you. There's another thing you need to know. I want to remind you about an image. I talked about this early on. First sermon, I think. The summary sermon. And now that we've walked through this sermon on the mount and we've seen some of the things Jesus has called for, hopefully it makes even more sense. There, there is this beauty to the life Jesus is describing. We're drawn to it. But if we're honest about ourselves and we weigh ourselves, judge ourselves based on the standard that Jesus has presented in this sermon, then we've got problems. 
the image we used at the time was of one of those uh, one of those those bug zapping lights. I don't ever see these anymore, but I grew up with them. They were a big thing in the South. You'd hang them from your porch. They were these blue lights. Is, any, is this making sense to anybody? I've got a few head nods out there. They made this loud humming sound, and you could always hear it when a bug would hit them. And you knew, success. Well, these bugs are drawn to the light, right? Oh, it's so beautiful. I can't not go towards it. Oh, it just, oh, I've got to unite myself with this beauty. But once you get too close, you get burned. And Sermon on the Mount is a lot like that. If you take it anything more than just, you know, good material for inspirational quotes or something to hang on your wall, it, you're drawn to it like a bug to one of those zapping lights. But if you get close enough and you're honest about it, you get zapped. Because what Jesus says, well, it's, it's radical and builds to chapter 5, verse 48. You are to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect. So now Jesus is telling us the difference between the man who's got a foundation on the sand and one on the rock is the difference between hearing my words and obeying them. And my word to you is summarized with this. You are to be perfect. That doesn't sound like gospel, does it? Sounds more like guilt. At the beginning of the sermon, Matthew said Jesus was going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And then this sermon is meant to be a description of the kinds of things Jesus was saying while he preached the good news of the kingdom. Where's the good news? Friends, the other thing you need to know as you're answering this question, what am I going to do with Jesus, is that to be with him, It's not just to acknowledge Him as Lord. It is that. It's also to recognize that He's come as Savior. This description we've been unpacking together of what it looks like to be in the kingdom, it's not read like a how-to list. It's read like a personal profile. Jesus is not describing what you've got to do if you want to be in His kingdom. He's not giving you a checklist. He's giving you a description of those who are in his kingdom. He's assuming this is what you'll look like if you're with me. This message is not just a standard. It's a portrait. And it falls at a particular place in a story that ends in his death and resurrection. Jesus is describing in this sermon what he is going to do in the lives of all those he redeems by what he will do on the cross. The story doesn't end at Matthew 7. Jesus is setting us up in this sermon in part to recognize why we need his death on our behalf so badly. And in part, he's setting us up with the good news of what he's going to do in us by His Spirit, because of His death and resurrection. This kingdom comes not by some sort of dramatic military victory. It doesn't come by popular election. It doesn't come by our own self-resolve. It comes by a willing, voluntary death as a sacrifice for the sins of those who never have a place in His kingdom otherwise. He was perfect 
for you so that you can be perfect in him. And that means that this description we've walked through together is not just a standard to meet, but a promise of what Jesus will do in your life. It's a promise that your life doesn't have to be dominated by conflict with people. He is making you new. It's a promise that you can be a peacemaker. It's a promise that you don't have to stay enslaved to your anger or your lust. It is possible to be free. It is guaranteed that you will be free if you're with Jesus. It's a promise that you don't have to live with constant anxiety, enslaved to your vision of the future that you may not actually be able to make reality. It's a promise that in Him we have revealed a Father. A Father who knows how to clothe even lilies that get burned up after a couple days' life and loves you far more than any flower. This kingdom comes with an offer of life embedded in this choice that Jesus has put in front of us. It's not just a warning that death lies on one side of this choice. It's also the implication that life lies on the other side. Life even for you. Life that you can have if you'll choose it. Life that he is going to the cross to make available. So friends, what what will you do with Jesus? Now what? You've heard of his agenda. Is this what you want? It's there. For you, if you'll trust him. Father, I pray that you would give us faith. You would protect us from building houses that look great on the outside, but that have no chance of surviving the storms of this life or the one to come. I pray that by this word we have considered together, you would shape us into people whose kingdom character stands out for your glory and not for ours. And I pray that you'd help us to do that together with and for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.